Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Look Ahead Podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by HII. HII is the largest supplier of surface combatants to the U.S. Navy. HII is delivering the advantage. Learn more at the Surface Navy Association's 36th National Symposium, January 9 through 11. Later in our program, Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, the co-hosts of our award-winning Cavus Ships podcast, join us to explain what they expect to hear from U.S. Navy leaders at SNA. But first, joining me today for our first look-ahead program of 2024 is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, a very happy new year. Hope you guys had terrific holidays and and welcome back aboard for uh, another year. Thank you, Vago. It seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? But here we are at the start of 2024. Uh, it does. And it's already been an extraordinarily action-packed uh, uh, start to the year as we uh, record this. I was going to ask you about uh, your, uh, you know, green book, your your look at uh, your defense score, scorecard uh, for the last month of 2023. Appeared to have a deal, a $1.6 uh, $6 trillion deal. Uh, a lot of details uh, r- remain to be sorted out. We might need a continuing resolution until the legislation, you know, another resolution that extends us from uh, the January 19 uh, potential government shutdown. Walk us through both, you know, from your defense scorecard standpoint, but also what this deal means for defense spending, because it looks like we're going to have $886 billion uh, for defense, which is a pretty good number. Obviously, all eyes are on whether we get a supplemental for Ukraine, whatever, but that's a nice baseline number. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, it's a positive step forward, Vago. Um, You know, you guys had talked about it on the show, on the Friday show, um, the fact that it, it came together. Now, look, you still have to see what kind of pushback you get, particularly from the Freedom Caucus. But I think, you know, just the simple fact that you have this agreement suggests that they are marginalized. Now, you know, the timing is still going to be interesting. I still wouldn't be surprised if you see, you know, at least for the uh, the first hurdle that's going to get crossed is these four appropriations bills uh, <clears throat> that are currently operating under a continuing resolution. I think that lasts through February 19th. You know, can you get the whole budget done by then? No. Um, You know, but is this something that frankly even maybe slips until February? Um, That may increasingly look more likely. I think it was also interesting that um, uh, the news came out today that President Biden was um, planning to make his State of the Union address on March 7th. Um, and, you know, that would also be a sign that, uh, you know, the, the major parts of the FI24 budget could be wrapped up by then. Uh, I still don't rule out, you know, the possibility that something slips here that, uh, you know, we're really just going back to the agreement <clears throat> that was the framework for the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And, you know, the other part about this, of course, is the, the big piece that's still missing in action is the security supplemental package. And, um, that's going to matter a lot too, not just to the Department of Defense, but to our allies and obviously to Ukraine uh, in particular. So, you know, you, you take your good days when you can get them. And I, I put this in the good day category. But, you know, there's still a lot to happen here. Uh, in our uh, little uh, chat group, uh, Michael Herson uh, thinks that it'll be mid to late February when we have a deal. Uh, and, you know, so it makes sense that you'll have appropriations uh, done by the time uh, that uh, the the president delivers his State of the Union. Um, yeah, and, and then the, the point yeah. there, Vago, that, that I think is important. Go ahead. That then gives top cover 
a bottom cover, frankly, for the DOD to then push ahead with the FY25 budget drop because they they know what they're dealing with in FY24 and there may be read-throughs or changes that they have to adjust. So um, right. that that looks like it's at least clearing the deck uh, before Easter. Uh, exactly. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, whether geopolitical risk is worsening, right? I mean, uh, you know, Ukrainian leaders are becoming, uh, you know, making the case increasingly that without support, whether from the United States or from uh, Europe, they're not going to be able to defeat Russia. And in this war, Russia has to be defeated. Otherwise, it's it's going to get up uh, to more no good. Is geopolitical risk worsening? You know, that's one of the themes that we heard at the Bank of America conference uh, that every year we uh, do with uh, Ron Epstein at Bank of America. Is geopolitical risk worsening? And what's the balance of the threat between Russia and China? What's the right way to look at this? Well, the interesting part, you know, I wrote about this. So it really wasn't a quiet holiday period for me. I had a note out on on just that simple. It was actually riffing off a, uh, I had a note that riffed off a, piece that was published by Peterson Institute um, back in December on geopolitical risk. And they had referred to an index of geopolitical risk that, that basically looked at news stories. And, you know, my conclusion was that's kind of a coincident indicator. It really, it's not a leading indicator. That index did not pick up the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, it didn't pick up the attacks uh, of October 7th that Hamas launched against Israel. But, you know, if you step back and look at the broader context of, um, you know, the willingness of states to resort to conflict or threat of conflict to gain territory, you know, Exhibit A is Russia and Ukraine. Um, I the, We've talked about it before, but I still think the Azerbaijan, Armenia, um, you know, that grab that the Azerbaijanis made of, of Karabakh was pretty interesting and really didn't get any international condemnation or, or you know, there were no penalties that were really paid by Azerbaijan. So, you know, this broader breakdown of, of um, you know, the, the where's the UN in a lot of these situations, you know, how, how easy is it for the U.S. to manage these kind of multiple crises now that we've introduced, uh, you know, kind of fiscal... Um, restraints on on defense once again, and the simple fact that Congress has not been able to pass this Ukraine supplemental, you know, I think that says a lot. Um, the 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 cost to actually use military force, I think, has come down. Um, you know, Exhibit A in that is is the Houthi use of <laughs> drones, cruise missiles, and ballistic missiles to wreak havoc in the Red Sea and try and strike at Israel. So. Um, you know, I, I think, I don't know where it's going to pop up next, um, but I do think, uh, you know, it's something that will remain a, a key force in, in the 2020s. And the other point that I, I made in this note, and I continue to observe, is it's really benefited from a stock market standpoint. It's benefited a lot of listed companies outside of the United States. I still think one of the striking issues in 2023, and I think this may have been a global read on where the U.S. defense sector is going is, you know, when you introduce the Fiscal Responsibility Act and you start talking about we can't spend any more money on defense, a lot of other people take notice of that. And so the best global defense performers in 2023 were in Europe, India, Turkey, right. Taiwan, South Korea. So Geopolitical risk doesn't necessarily mean it's all good news for the United States defense sector. Um, on the contrary, you know, what the market is saying is 
There are a lot of other places in the world that are concerned about these trends and they are going to beef up their militaries and they're not necessarily going to you know, always pick the U.S. as their uh, partner of choice uh, from a defense industrial standpoint. They're going to build their own defense industry. So that may be the other very important message here. Uh, one of the other points that you made is, right, we we talk about, you know, uh, and I made this point late last year, you know, Trump is finished, BB's finished, Russia's finished, and and Russia is not finished by a long shot. Uh, so it's it's interesting that people, uh, you know, make these kind of sweeping pronouncements. Um, there are a lot of discussions uh, about windows of deterrence, uh, Byron, right, whether with China uh, or or with Russia, and folks dismiss them until you realize that there might be windows, right? She has told the military be ready by 2027. And Poland's state uh, secretary says that the window to deter, to deter Moscow is probably closer to three years than five to 10 years. How how do we need to be thinking about windows at this point? Um, look, you know, I, I think the, the point here and that uh, comment by uh, the Polish minister was actually made it was picked up in an Estonian um, publication, and he was responding to a, I think it was a German Council of Foreign Relations report that talked about, eh, you know, you we really have a, a a risk of a resurgent Russia kind of five to ten years from. Now. He said, no, 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 you have to think about this in in a much tighter time frame. Um, you know, the issue is, look, those windows exist, and frankly. Um, you know, they they exist because adversaries may want to act before, um, you know, new military capability is brought to bear. I was reading something over the holidays about, you know, World War Two and Asia and, you know, how Japan really saw a clock ticking um, that they had to act uh, in 1941 right. before um, U.S. military power grew, before British, you know, military power potentially grew and this alliance started, started to work things together. So um, the, the issue that I think, you know, we talked about this before, Vago, is the defense industrial base is not behaving as if those windows necessarily exist. Um, you know, there may be some bright lights um, that, that shine through here, but uh, the Wall Street Journal had a very, I think, apropos article to this about just how long it's taking to ramp up these production uh, uh, rates on things like AMRAM, uh, Patriot Interceptors, you know, there was a, a very large contract that was announced, um, Europe buying <clears throat> Patriot Interceptors from a joint venture of MDDA and RTX. But those missiles don't deliver until I think it was 2027 to 2033. So that's outside that window. And, um, you know, if those windows really are, are uh, they're backed by internal intelligence assessments, um, stuff has to happen a lot faster than it actually is. Uh, and I should point out, right, that's a $5.5 billion order for a thousand uh, Patriot uh, enhanced uh, uh, guidance enhanced uh, missile gem uh, missiles. What what are you know, you and I were at an off the record uh, where we, we were basically learning that just about everything is 36 months away. Right. And that, for example, stingers still have hand. Uh, crafted uh, gyro gimbals uh, in them. Um, what are some things that we ought to be doing to move this ball forward? Because it's just no way to run a railroad, right? If everything is 36 months away. Well, and that, that was the funny part about the Wall Street Journal articles. You know, they talked about these com the complexity of these weapon systems, but, you know, come on. A lot of these are 1970s, 1980s designs. They're complex because 
you know, <laughs> they may be still built <clears throat> um, to your point on the, uh, the hand wound gimbals, you know, in, in ways that are archaic right now that just add to um, the length and the cost to actually build them. So I, I'm, I'm not an engineer Vago, you know, but I do believe, um, and, and they're probably going to be better, much better people to talk to about this, but, you know, my understanding, you know, you still have lengthy qualification, uh, certification times to bring suppliers onto defense work. <clears throat> um, testing can be sequential. Um, you know, there's still, it's still a very cautious system in a lot of ways. And, and that's, there's some goodness in that, but at the same time, you know, if you want to dot every I and cross every T, you may end up with things that cost much more and take much longer to do than than circumstances merit. And um, and I do think, you know, you kind of wonder, well, if you just took a clean sheet design of some of these weapon systems today, um, how quickly and how much better could they be built than something that was designed, uh, you know, in the 1970s or 1980s? That may have been, you know, had some improvement to it, but, but, you know, the way it's manufactured, you know, the suppliers, all these other things, even the people who know how to do this stuff, um, it, you know, it, they're just not abundant. And um, right. I kind of wonder if that's going to change. Um, well, uh, you know, you said that some people are being brought out of retirement in order to hand weave these. Uh, and the, at the event we were at, a European uh, company said, hey, by the way, we have a computer chip that does that exact function. So you, you don't need to do that. right? Yeah. So hopefully somebody is listening. Uh, let's take a look at the week ahead. The Surface Navy Association has its big national uh, symposium, always a highlight of the Naval year. Walk us through your expectations for SNA. Uh, but it's also going to be a big week that includes the disclosure uh, of the Defense Department and industrial strategy. Walk us through the week and what... The two Chris's, Chris Cavus and Chris Sabello, I, I think are much better informed on some of this than I am. But, you know, what I'm going to be looking for is what the new Chief of Naval Operations has to say. Um, she was sworn in on November 2nd. And to my knowledge, this is really our first big kind of public event in what I think is going to be a fairly friendly and receptive crowd to whatever message she, she has to put forward about the course and heading... She wants to take the Navy. She she um, is or was a surface warfare officer. So um, she's going to feel right at home. You know, what does she say about the budget outlook? Um, fleet architecture, you know, what's the health and what are some of the in in industry issues that she sees? So I, I think that's going to be important, um, you know, kind of stepping out for her. Uh, and, you know, then just more broadly, you know, how are some of these programs faring? Um the, the new Constellation class frigates, um, some of the smaller, you know, they're they're not big budget items, but um, the unmanned, uh, large unmanned surface vehicle vessels, um, there's an open question about whether or not this new submarine tender <clears throat> that was in the FY24 budget survives. Um, you know, that's one of those seemingly smaller, but very critical pieces of, of equipment that um, I, I just hope that it does make it through the FY24 budget and that the plan stays intact for that in, in the FY26. But again, you're going to need to see leadership come out and say how important that is. Um, you know, it's 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 part of the broader force. So um, I guess the other, oh, and I'll be there. I'll be there for part of the event, not not the entire event. I've got another, um, another thing that I've got to attend, but um, so this week, you know, look, I'm, I don't think there are going to be major surprises from the defense industrial based strategy. 
Um, the monthly treasury statement is going to come out on uh, probably on January 11th. So we get a, a read on, on investment outlays and own operations and maintenance outlays before earnings season. CSIS is holding a January 9th event on uh, DOD AI and autonomy policy, and then another one on August on the 12th uh, with, with Mark Hansian. Um Chatham House is holding an event on Taiwan's elections and another <clears throat> that day on, on January 10th on the uh, the Israel-Palestinian war. And uh, on January 11th, they're featuring the crisis group is going to talk about the 10 conflicts to watch in 2024. So it's going to be a pretty busy week. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Hope you have a great week. Looking forward to seeing you at SNA uh, and then having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago. And joining us now are the co-hosts of our award-winning Sea Power podcast, Cavus Ships, uh, none other than Christopher P. Cavus, one of the world's leading uh, naval writers and our naval warfare contributing editor, uh, and uh, Chris Cervello, who is the integral member of our team and the co-host of Cavus Ships. He's a retired United States Navy commander and public affairs officer, and he's also the founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm uh, and a Sea Powerist. Uh, both uh, to the core. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Vago. Happy New Year, Vago. Uh, so I'm uh, catching uh, you guys a little bit uh, on the move because we are going into uh, Surface Navy Association uh, today uh, through Wednesday premiere, uh, one of the leading naval uh, shows of the year and certainly the flagship uh, show uh, for the Surface Navy Full disclosure, I'm a proud life member uh, of the Surface Navy Association. And so this is the 36th uh, National Symposium. Chris, what are going to be the big themes we're going to hear from Navy leadership, right? Obviously, we have a new chief of naval operations who is an 1110, right? She's a surface warfare officer of the first order. Walk us through what are some of the messages we're going to hear are. Well, there's going to be a lot of rah-rahing and probably deservedly so because the Surface Navy right now has been on display as almost never before, certainly in recent years and recent decades, uh, in the Red Sea and the, around the Babel Mandab Straits. Uh, we have a, several destroyers now are getting prominent uh, publicity for shooting down multitude of uh, Houthi-launched uh, un unmanned aerial vehicles and, and missiles and, um, and essentially just being in the area and running to the rescue of, uh, of ships that are in distress. Um, it's not one destroyer. It's been actually four. The USS Carney is getting the the uh, most of the publicity right now, but by no means this is the only one. And of course, even the Carney is uh, one of the older destroyers in the fleet, a Flight One Arleigh Burke class destroyer. And part of the thing is that you know these ships are still relevant. They're still uh, they're still worth having out there. Um, they're not they're not done with yet, even though they some of them are approaching thirty or over thirty years old. Um, they're going to talk about that. Um, they're going to talk about the need for more ships. Um, they will talk about trying to keep ships maintained. Uh, maintenance uh, will be a big focus and all the new things that they're trying to do to keep the fleet up up, up to speed and uh, and still effective. And they're going to talk about um, you know this um, this need to have 75 ships. This is something that came up a year ago um, with the with the previous, um, commander of the Naval Service Forces uh, declared that he wanted at least 75 service combatants available at all times. Um, that number gets kind of thrown out in the air you know, compared to what. Uh, they're reluctant to talk about that, and they're reluctant to talk about 
like what year are we talking about uh, when we're doing that? But uh, 75 is an ambitious number. Um, there are, uh, there's, there's almost 80 destroyers now in the fleet, getting close to it. Um, that's a lot. Uh, the cruisers are going away. They're, they're not really a factor anymore, much, I mean, less and less all the time. So we're really talking about destroyers and, uh, of course, frigate and anilatoral combat troops, by the way, are in there. Um, although the Navy downplays them every which way from Sunday. And uh, the frigates are a long, 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 long way from being operational. But they will talk about that, and there are a lot of challenges to it. Um, they're not they're no, no they're not near that number yet, but they'll they will be pointing to a lot of moves that are do, that are under that are uh, underway to hit that number. And they and they will talk about maintenance. Um, it, it, it'll be interesting to see if they talk about maintenance in the context of the public yards, the four navy the navy four navy owned shipyards, which are Norfolk, Portsmouth, Pearl Harbor, and um, uh, Puget Sound. Or will they actually mention the commercial uh, business that most of the surface navy and all of their all of their destroyers uh, depend on, uh, which uh, the, the naval shipyards only work on nuclear ships, which is uh, only about 40, 50 ships. It's all the submarines and the aircraft carriers outside of submarines and aircraft carriers. Everybody else has to go to commercial yard. But a lot of the discussion I'll be listening for, among others, uh, will be, are you going to talk about the 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 commercial ship repair industry or are you going to confine this to just things like well you pointed all all the initiatives we're doing to get the public yards up to speed there's a lot going on that's for sure but the public yards are a different entity than the commercial yards and i don't know that i think that distinction gets lost a lot of times that's those are sort of the things i'm looking for to hear sir villain what do you want to be hearing from navy leaders well i want to hear here, um, the surface community take a little bit of a victory lap on what we're seeing in the Red Sea. Now, it's look, this conflict is far from over, but they need to feel really good about how those crews are performing. If you remember, it wasn't that long ago, a year to 18 months ago, the surface force was on its ass. They were getting beat up in the Navy. They were getting beat up in the, the press. Um, and now we're seeing a surface Navy that is relevant. Uh, we're seeing uh, surface warfare officers perform well. Um, unfortunately, because of the way the White House has kept a tight grip on this story, you're not getting to see the onboard stories from uh, embarked media that maybe you would. So I, I think it's incumbent upon the surface force to tell their own story, somewhat for the media, but more importantly for the surface warriors that are uh, in uniform today, the gray beards and, uh, you, you know, the folks that are around surface warfare, they need to feel good about themselves because uh, they have a habit of beating themselves up. And, you know, this is a moment where they uh, they really can take a little bit of a they can feel good about the things that, that they're doing. The other thing that I want to hear uh, them talk about just lastly is I want to hear and Chris mentioned it, uh, the balance between needing to build a new Navy, new ships while at the same time modernizing and maintaining the ships that we have. Uh, this administration has not been as good um, at threading the needle and explaining the importance of both. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, it's incumbent upon the surface leadership, it's incumbent upon Secretary Del Toro to explain to the larger audience why we've, they've got to do all three things. Uh, and and from your standpoint, right? I mean, uh, the Washington Post last week uh, wrote uh, what uh, some would see sort of as a pro-Navy uh, editorial, but um, 
you know, that uh, unfortunately, uh, having discussed this with you guys, may have had a couple of misconceptions in there as well as a couple of old tropes. Uh, and then there are some, including our very own Dr. Dove Zakheim, who joins us on the Washington uh, Roundtable, uh, Cervello, who, you know, said, look, I disagree with the decision to pull the Ford out. Uh, two aircraft carriers uh, off the coast is better than than one uh, in the, um, you know, or or rather he made the case it's important to have a carrier in the eastern uh, Mediterranean as opposed to the western Mediterranean uh, and and was a little concerned to see Gerald R. Ford come up come home even though she has been under on a on a very long deployment. What what are some disconnects here that you see in terms of uh, the reality and even some helpful uh, editorials that might actually not be as as helpful as they need to be again if the Navy wants to tell its story more clearly. Yeah, so let's start with the Washington Post story. Th this is the case, Vago. Maybe the one time I would say to your audience, um, I hope people just read the headlines and didn't read the the whole story because it was a good headline, right? I mean, you know, the fact that the Washington Post editorial board is talking about the Navy, that's great. They said we need a, you know, a, a force for the future, a larger Navy, but we also to need a more lethal Navy. Hey, that's great. If you just stopped reading there, uh, that's a that's a good navalist uh, op-ed. If you read deeper, what what you take away is is that um, they push forward this sort of false idea that you either have to build uh, or maintain that you can't do both. And as we just talked about in the you know sort of previous lines of question, a uh, a Navy that is ready um, and that is able to uh, fight. Um, you, you know, competitors now and in the future has to do all three things. It has to build, it has to modernize, and it has to maintain. Um, and so these these sort of false choices um, are, are not helpful. Again, hopefully the leadership um, and people like us um, can sort of make those uh, those points uh, on behalf of the Navy if, if they choose not to, you know, sort of get out there and, and, and you know, lead, lead the way on it. In terms of what capability is in the Red Sea, um, I think Dove is exactly right in, in the sense that hey, a carrier has always sent a strong signal, and he talked about it on Friday, to friends and foes alike. But I, I think it's important, and this is where the White House maybe has overthought this by, by not getting reporters out there and by not showing all of the capabilities and capacity that exists in the Red Sea, we still have a tremendous amount of capability out there. I think our friends know it. I think uh, our foes know it. Um, as Cavus mentioned, you're, you're going to see four or more destroyers that can uh, uh, that can either strike or defend. Um, you're, you see an ARG out there that has, as you mentioned, uh, F-35 Bravos on board, a marine uh, aircraft that can strike or defend um, as, as needed. So I'm okay, at least as somebody that's worried about maritime security with the carrier going home. Uh, if things ramp up enough, we can always send another carrier uh, over there because we do have the luxury, at least right now, of having a little bit of carrier bench. Chris? I think um, just to, if you didn't see the head, the, the editorial, the headline is a big Navy is vital. A more lethal one would be even better. Well, that's, you know, sort of our mantra here. Um, we believe that we every single day. Uh, I, I think Vago's right. There, there are, there are a lot of tropes in here. There's a lot of, you know, this, this is, that's not quite the story. That's kind of a mischaracterization. Um, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it strikes me once again as the mainstream finally pays attention to the Navy, but they don't get it. They walk by the real story, and it ha this happens all the time. 
And that's a that's a factor of number one. The mainstream covers a lot of things. They don't pay the pay attention to the Navy day in day out like some of us do. And also, the Navy doesn't do a very good job of getting its message out there when the opportunity presents itself. And I, to, to me, while yes, a big Navy absolutely is vital, and yes, a more lethal one would absolutely be better. Again, they they make a mistake here between building ships versus repairing ships. It's not an either or in any sense of the word at ever. It's not. That's a, that's a bad thing. By the way, Navy leadership sometimes feeds that that misinformation. But the real story for me is that I would like to see the Pentagon reinvesting a lot of its, a good portion of its bloated, enormous budget not over to the Navy as they were doing 20 years ago when we were getting into conflicts, long-term conflicts, on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq, when funds were transferred to the Army to build up an Army quickly, which is a whole lot easier than building up a Navy with any any rapidity, or, or an Air Force for that matter. Armies, comparatively, are much easier. But now, this if, if, uh, if we're in a conflict with China, this is a maritime conflict every which way from Sunday, and it's absolutely not a land warfare conflict. And we're talking about presence. Presence matters. So we have a lot of people paying attention to if it's not, you know, one of the dictums in the Pentagon right now is if it's not something that contributes to a kinetic fight against the Chinese trying to invite invade Taiwan, then we don't need it. Well, presence matters. And presence is what's what's driving a lot of the coverage right now in the Red Sea and the Gulf of uh, Aden and the Balba Mandab. This is a big deal. And it's not kinetic, and all those things that you bought to smash Chinese invasions of Taiwan aren't aren't doing you a whole lot of good in this context. But you need that stuff. I'd like to see a reinvestment. I think the Post misses the mark on that. They just they 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 overshot. I I, I would point out. I think we need um, a, a more capability in general, and there's got to be a broader modernization. We need sea power. Sure. We need air power. Uh, and we need the elements, uh, right, uh, when it comes to air defense. Uh, it's the Navy. The Navy barely has enough air defense for itself. The rest of it is the Army, and the Army doesn't have enough air defense. So I think that, you know, we need a, a, a bigger – we don't necessarily have to be robbing Peter to pay Paul on this. We need to be investing in all of these capabilities because, God forbid, our, our deterrence posture uh, depends on all of it. Gentlemen, thanks very much. Looking forward to seeing you out uh, at uh, SNA. Uh, and stay tuned for our coverage because uh, Chris Cavus and I will be interviewing HII's CEO, Chris Kastner, uh, and he is going to be joining us as our guest uh, on the program uh, tomorrow. Gentlemen, thanks very much, and see you out there at the Hyatt Regency. Thanks, Fargo. Thanks, Fargo.